Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. It is that time of year where we have come to the end of our ministry year. Uh, our fiscal year here at Christ Chapel uh, ends at the end of August, begins September 1, which means it's that time of year for us to, as congregational members, uh, you should have received a vote to install our new leadership for the upcoming year. Uh, if you didn't receive one of those uh, ballots via email, then you can pick one up outside of the venue that you're worshiping in uh, today. Also want to welcome all all of you and invite all of you that are constitutional members, you're welcome to come to our annual meeting that's today at one o'clock in the sanctuary. We'll kind of review uh, what we've been doing this past year and kind of give you a glimpse at what's ahead for the next year. Uh, okay, speaking of that time of year, it is that time of year where every coach is giving an inspirational speech. Fall sports are starting, and I mean, can I get an amen? I mean, that, that's fun, okay? The heat, not so much. But the fall, fall sports beginning, I mean, I watched a little bit of UMass New Mexico State yesterday, okay? That's how desperate I am to watch uh, some college football. But excited that that is starting up. But uh, it doesn't matter what sport it is, if it's uh, soccer, volleyball, football, whatever sport you're starting up, all of those coaches are giving these inspirational beginning of the season speeches right now, where they're trying to inspire their players to go and, and perform at their best by reminding them of all the things that they've done, all, the, all, all those summer workouts. I mean, you can pretty much uh, talk about these speeches in the same way. They all have the same kind of categories, you know, where the coaches are like, you know, remember the way that you lifted those weights, you know? Remember the way that you woke up early and did those runs. Remember how, and they're trying to remind them of all the things that they've done. Now, there are, uh, Hollywood has done much better on those speeches than I just did. And, and you can think about some wonderful uh, sports-themed movies that have those, those great pregame speeches you know, like Miracle, you know, the hockey movie uh, about the USA hockey team. That was, a, that was a great one. Remember the Titans, you know, that, that was a good one. You know, Mighty Ducks, one, two, and three. You know, th those are all, all wonderful ones. But my favorite one is, is Hoosiers. Do you guys remember Hoosiers? You know, who's Gene Hackman there, you know, Hickory, Indiana, this tiny little school makes it all the way to the championship game. And Gene Hackman has him in the locker room and he says, you know, basically he says, For, forget about the crowds, you know, forget about the size of the school because they were playing a school that, that's much, much bigger than them. Forget about the fancy uniforms that this other school has. And he says, remember what got you here. Remember what got you here. He's trying to draw on all of those things, all the, all the sacrifices that they made, all the hard work that they had put in, all the camaraderie that they had built, uh, you know, by facing adversity. That's a coach's favorite word in those speeches, adversity. Um, you know, all the adversity that they had faced and overcome to get to that point. And these inspirational speeches are meant to give them uh, uh, optimism for, hey, we're gonna, I think we can do this. I think we can do pretty well so that they therefore go out and perform. Now, there's no guarantee that they're going to win, unless it's a Hollywood movie. Then, of course, they're going to win. But there's no guarantee that those, those speeches are going to work. But, but winning isn't easy. 
You've got to put in that, that preparatory work, that preparation. You've got to put in the hard work. You've got to put in the blood, the sweat, the tears if you want to win. But let me ask you a question. Is that true in the Christian life? Is that true in the Christian life? We talk about living the victorious Christian life. But is the victorious Christian life based on your preparation, based on your blood, your sweat, your tears, your hard work, all the things that you have done? Is that win guaranteed on what you've done or what someone else has done? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you will, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, we're going to be in verses 13 to 52. 13 to 52 are the verses. It's page 921 if you're opening one of the blue Bibles, no matter which venue you're in. Uh, this is a large portion, but don't worry, I'll, I'm going to summarize a lot of it for us as we continue our series, uh, Unexpected. And th- there are many unexpected things that are, uh, we're going to highlight today that happen in this passage. But remember, I just want to remind you of where we, where we are because last week we started off on the first missionary journey. And if you remember, they started off Barnabas and Paul, and I say that because remember Barnabas was leading the first missionary journey, or at least started off leading the first missionary journey from Antioch of Syria, and they go down to Poseidon, they go over to Cyprus. They go all throughout Cyprus. They end up going to see Sergius Paulus, but Sergius Paulus has this magician that's in the occult, and he is a barrier to Sergius Paulus believing, and uh, his name is Bar-Jesus, this fake Jesus, this false savior, and uh, he ends up being blinded uh, by God's mercy, and Sergius Paulus believes, okay? That was last week's sermon, just like that, okay? Then... Where, where we're going to pick up today is Paul. I told you last week there's a transition going on. Uh, there's a transition going from Jew to Gentile, from Jerusalem to Antioch, the missionary church, going from Peter to Paul. There's also a transition that I mentioned in that passage where Barnabas was leading the missionary journey and they went to Cyprus, Barnabas's home island, but then there was a shift. Now Paul is going to begin leading this missionary journey and where they are led next is to a different Antioch, a different Antioch. Uh, Look at verses 13 to 14. One of the reasons why I want you to have your Bible open is uh, some of these verses are not going to come up on the screen, so it's going to be helpful for you. Uh, If now you go, okay, he was serious, open my Bible. It's page 921 in the Blue Bible, okay, Acts chapter 13. But verse 13 and 14, it says, now Paul and his companions, where did Barnabas go? He's there. Barnabas is there. But remember, I told you, there's a transition. Paul now begins to take the lead. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to uh, Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is John Mark. This was Barnabas' cousin who I mentioned last week. This gets brought up later on in Acts, but we're not going to cover it today. But I just wanted to say that it's here. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, a a totally different Antioch from the one we mentioned yesterday. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. 
So let me, let me show you a map just so that you understand where we are. Antioch of Syria is where they launched that missionary journey from. They went over to Cyprus. Then they sail up to Perga and they go up in elevation to Antioch of Pisidia. That's where we are. So two different Antiochs and that's, that's important to know. So they, they go into the synagogue. Now why do they go into the synagogue? This is Paul's pattern. Paul would go into the synagogue and preach to the Jews. He would preach to the Jews first. Why would he preach to the Jews first? Any, any guesses? At least none you want to say out loud. They would, he would go to the Jews first because the Jews are, are, should be expecting Jesus, right? They're the ones that are expecting the Messiah, they're the ones that have this long history going, one day God is going to save us. One day I'm, I'm hoping that he'll send a savior. And so Paul goes in and goes, uh, I'm going to go to the Jews first because they're looking for Jesus. They, 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 are, they are expecting him. So he would go into the synagogue first. So he goes into the synagogue and he sits down. Watch what happens next. Look at verse 15. This is so ironic. It says, after the reading from the law and the prophets, which was the tradition in the synagogue, they would read the Old Testament law. The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them. This is Paul and his companions, which would have included Barnabas, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, we'll stop right there. I mean, dramatic, right? So he's sitting in the synagogue and it's like they're, they're guests in the synagogue. Now remember, synagogues back in those days, they were, they were very small. So Paul and his companions would have stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, they're, they're new in town, new to this synagogue. And so they're like, oh, hey, well, we have some guests. You know, would you like to stand up and say something? We'll do that in just a moment in all of your worship services, if you're a guest. Just kidding. But he says, would you like to stand up and say anything? And Paul stands up in the middle of the synagogue to all of these folks and delivers an incredible speech. Kind of like this inspirational pregame speeches that we think of where the coach stands up in the locker room in the middle of the team and says, all right, guys, you know, victory is right on the edge where you are 48 minutes away from being legends. You know, it's right there, except his message is completely different. His message isn't go out and fight for victory. His message is victory's already won. There is no game to be played. There is nothing to go out and earn. There's nothing to go out and work for. Victory has already been won through Jesus Christ. That, that's it. Message, Selah, it's done. Service is over, drop the mic. That's the message. You see, he tells them that all the things that they needed for victory, Jesus had already done. The, the things that they were waiting for, the things that they were working toward, they no longer had to work toward that. You want to talk about an inspirational speech? I can't think of a, I can't think of a, a better one. 
But that's not exactly what they wanted to hear. That was an unexpected message in the synagogue. So what I want to do today is I want to walk through, and I'll summarize these large portions, but I want to walk through what this very inspirational speech was of Paul's because he tells them that the cost for victory had already been paid. It's, it's already been, been done. And when I say victory, I mean salvation, I mean redemption, uh, I mean a relationship with a holy God, I mean freedom from sin, I mean joy. All the things that people say they experience when they experience victory. The, this elation, this euphoria, this, this bliss, that's the, the, the eternal victory that we experience in Christ. So I want to show you what Paul's message was because obviously it's very inspirational for us today. Show you what the cost was, how he proclaims it, and the unexpected response. Okay, so let's look back and we'll, we're going to go back through this and we're going to start uh, at the second part of verse 16 where I want you to see that the cost of victory was paved by a patient God. The cost of victory was paved by a patient God. So remember, they're sitting in the synagogue and they say, brothers, do you have any word of encouragement? And Paul stands up. It's like we do op you know, open church here and they pass the mic to him. And here's what, where he begins. Verse 16, he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, there would have been converts to Judaism in there who were not necessarily born uh, in, uh, into the Jewish race, but they were converted over to the Jewish faith. So men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, Paul starts off with this, where do we begin? And he begins with the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. And he talks about, remember, they were in slavery in Egypt, uh, mostly because of their hardness of heart. They cry out to the Lord, Lord, save us. The Lord sends uh, Moses those 10 plagues, delivers them from slavery. The, this miraculous thing where only God can get the glory. They get out of slavery in Egypt, and then what do the people want? To go back to Egypt. Do you remember this? They want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to slavery. Now, you want to talk about a patient God. You've just delivered your people whom you love, whom, you, whom you've chosen, whom you've put your name on. You've led them miraculously out of slavery, and they say, I don't want to follow you. I want to go back to slavery. That was 40 years that he led them through the wilderness in fact, an entire generation passes away. And Paul doesn't stop there. I'm going to summarize where he continues to go to highlight the Lord's patience because he continues to go on there. And he says, even after those 40 years, he led you to the promised land and even took out the seven nations that were inhabiting the promised land so that you could have the plot that he promised. 
And then, once you're in the promised land, you said, God, we don't want you to be a king. We want a human king like all the other nations around us. We want to be just like them. And so God says, fine, you can have Saul. How well did that go for him? Didn't go well. He goes through Saul. He goes through David. He talks about the history all there. Then he goes all the way to John the Baptist. All the way to John the Baptist, who's, remember there was this period of silence, 400 years of silence, and then John the Baptist who comes as a forerunner to announce Jesus. You want to talk about patience. Our God is a patient God. And one of the ways that he's described in the Old Testament is he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Can I get an amen? I mean, praise God. Praise God that he is so patient. Patient with those folks, as he's described here. But, man, just recount your own life. I could tell a similar story about myself, about how the Lord is patient. Where he says, follow me. And I go, thanks for delivering me from that. And then I go, but I want to go my own way. You know, Cody, I'll be your king. Yeah, but I kind of like being my own king. Yet he is merciful and gracious to me. He is patient, slow to anger and abounding in love. This path to victory was paid by, by a very patient God. And you say, why is he so patient? Is it, well, one, it's his character. It's the na- very nature of God. But we also get a clue in 2 Peter chapter 3. It says that the Lord is not slow, as in what we would see slow, but he's patient so that people would believe in him. He's giving everyone an opportunity to come to faith in Jesus. That, that's what he's doing. And that's, that's the whole history here that Paul is laying out is I'm being patient because I want you to be saved. I want you to experience victory in Christ. I want you to experience freedom, joy, forgiveness, salvation, redemption, all of those things that I'm summarizing with the word victory. I want you to have all of those things. That's why I'm this patient with you. So the cost of victory is paved by a patient God, but the cost of victory was also paved and provided by a sacrificial God. The cost of victory was provided by a sacrificial God. See, as they're wandering around in the wilderness, and I'm summarizing huge swaths of theology and history here, but as they're wandering around in the wilderness, remember, the only, the only way that we can relate to a holy God is through the forgiveness of our sins that were in, in this whole foreshadowing of being washed in the blood happened with the sacrificial system. Remember, there are 613 laws in the laws of Moses, laws that you had to obey every single one of them in order to be made right with a holy God because that's how perfect he is. He can obey all 613 perfectly, not skipping a beat. But you and I, we can't. No human being ever has except for Jesus And so because they would fall short of these 613, there was a sacrificial system in place where we would sacrifice animals. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. It's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. There has to be a shedding because it's our, 
something that we need to get into our brains. That is how offensive my sin is to a holy God. That's how offensive your sin is to a holy God, that it is life for life. That's why he institutes this sacrificial system, because he wants to be made right. And so he sacrifices these creatures in order to be made right with humankind. And then he says, man, this is going to go on forever. This can't go on forever. There has to be a sacrifice once and for all. And so he sends his one and only son, Jesus. And that's what Paul stands up and says in verse 38 and 39. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, they were trying to seek freedom by obeying all the laws and all they experienced was that they were enslaved to those laws and they would always fall short. And he says, if you believe in Jesus who paid the penalty for your sins once and for all, you're freed from that slavery and you are accepted as a child of God. Com- completely different. You see, God sacrificed himself. And you say, what kind of sacrifice? Because well, it's not just Jesus on the cross. Think about it. God sacrificed his son. Jesus sacrificed his place in heaven to come and live on earth with us for a period of time where he could fulfill the law perfectly. Then he sacrificed himself so that he could pay the penalty for our sins, so he could bridge that gap, so that we could be free, free, completely free, not under sin, not enslaved by sin any longer, no longer under guilt, no longer under condemnation, no longer under this this drive and this, this weight to perform the laws perfectly, but to say, I just trust you, Jesus. I'm accepted because of what you have done. That's the freedom that he was claiming. But he doesn't get the exact response. You see, it's a wonderful message. Wonderful message of victory has already been won. There's nothing to go and fight for. There's nothing to go and work for. And that's the cost of victory that's proclaimed by all the children of God. This is the good news that we proclaim as available to anyone who would believe in Jesus. That's what Paul said in verses 38 and 39. But this message is not exactly accepted by everyone. See, Paul and Barnabas preached this message and it says that some of them believed But it was so intriguing that they asked him to come back to the synagogue the next week to preach the same message. And let's pick up in verses 44 and 47. It says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with joy, jealousy, and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the 
Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, you've heard this phrase, ends of the earth, before. Where have you heard it before? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the last place that we heard it. Remember, you, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But you also have heard it in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, and I, lo, I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. He wants his message to go out to everyone, but he took it to the people who were expecting him first. And he takes it to the Jews, and that's why he takes it to the synagogue, the ones who should have been expecting him, and instead, they reject him. They say, we, we don't want that, that message. And I have, I, I've wrestled with this for many years, but I've especially wrestled with it this week of how to phrase this to you, because the question that should be in your mind right now is, why would they reject the victory found in Jesus. And I don't have a good answer for you. Pride? Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I want to earn it myself. I, that's, that's all I can think of. I mean, it, it, it's like somebody coming to, you know, and you've heard this phrase before, you've heard of people saying, I don't want charity. You know? I don't, want any, I don't want charity. I don't want you to give me anything. I want to earn it myself. I want, I want to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I want to do it all by my. That's the only thing I could guess because, guys, it's, it's not logical. If you knew that you could never measure up yourself, no matter how hard you worked, and the only way that you could be made right with God, the only way that you could be freed from sin, the only way you could find peace, joy, eat, eternal, abundant life is found through Jesus, why would you not accept it? I, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't have a good answer. And maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, as the only way to be made right with God. I don't know why. Not, nothing you're trying can ever measure up and I'm not calling you a failure. I'm calling you human. Like me, like everyone you're sitting around. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Every single one of us. So I don't know what your excuse is, but I promise it's not good enough. There's only one way to be made right with God. And that's what he stands up and tells him. And the Jews reject him. And he goes, fine. If you don't want to hear it, I'm not going to waste my time. And I know that that sounds harsh, but actually it says that he uh, wipes the dust off his feet. That's actually a reference back to Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he says, listen, go and preach this good news to all those cities. But if they don't want to hear you, wipe the dust off your feet, which is symbolic of I don't want to have anything to do with this pagan nation. Like, like I'm, I am not associated with what is going on here, is the, is the picture. And that's what they do, and they turn to the Gentiles. 
Remember, Paul was set aside and called an apostle of the Gentiles. Why? It's out of necessity because the Jews didn't want to hear it. They, they didn't want to hear that message of salvation, of freedom, and forgiveness. So the entire city turns against them. But the Gentiles, if you look, look at verse 48, when, the, when they hear this, it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. What? We didn't know we could be, uh, you know, we could be on God's team. We, we've never been picked. You know, we've always been on the, on the sideline. Nobody's ever picked us. And now you're telling us that God picked us and that we can be on his team through what Jesus has done and that can apply to me? Yeehaw! <laughs> like somebody that has always felt like they're on the outside now has an invitation to come on the inside. And that's made available to them through Jesus. I mean, what, what a, a, a joyful invitation and reception. And you, you, you know that that's the reception that God had hoped would have happened there in the synagogue. That's exactly what he had hoped for. You know, it reminds me of the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells this parable about somebody who prepares a big wedding feast and you know how, how much, we've come out of wedding season, how much preparation goes into a wedding. Prepares this big wedding feast and invites all the guests and says, it's time, come. And all, out of all of those invited guests, no one shows up. And the servants come back and they go, I don't know where everybody is. All the people you invited, they didn't come. And he goes, we're having the wedding regardless. So go out into the street and invite whoever wants to come. Come on. If they want to party, they can party with me. And so he invites them all in and they come in and there's a, a huge party. Did they have to pay? Did they have to do anything to be invited? Nope. They just had to accept the invitation. That's it. And that's my biggest thing for you today, for all of us really, is this. Accept the victory that's in Jesus. Accept the victory that's in Jesus. This is a non-pregame speech that Paul gives because what he's telling them is the game's already been won. There is no pregame. It's a postgame speech. It's a postgame interview saying the victory has already been won. Jesus paid it all. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. There's the, you don't have to live under the law anymore. You are now free. Would you accept the victory that's in Jesus? It's the only way that you can be made right with a holy God. That's it. And you may accept him for the first time today. I've been praying all week for you. But guess what? This is the same message that each of us need to preach to ourselves pre-day every day. Is that the victory's already been won. It changes us. It changes us. So let me give you some applications of where that starts. So first, fear God to understand your need and accept his grace. Fear God to understand your need and accept his grace. 
If you look back at verses 16 and verse 26, both times uh, Paul references those who fear God. Verse 16, men of Israel and you who fear God. If you go to verse 26, brothers, son of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. He's speaking to God-fearers. And what, what, does that, what does that mean? Well, remember, f- to fear God means to have reverence for him. It, it's, it's to have a, um, an awe of him, a respect for him. And part of that entails knowing that he is holy. Like that, that, should, that should make an impression on you. And when we understand that he is holy, then we understand and can grasp our need because we go, I'm not. And when we understand our need, that's when we will accept his grace. I I see this all the time. The the best training is just-in-time training in, in the workplace. What does that mean? As soon as somebody needs help, then they want to listen. As soon as they understand their need, now it's time to, uh, then we go, uh, over here. And you're like, well, we had a a training on that two weeks ago. Yeah, I didn't want it then. Wasn't listening. That's why we start with fear God to understand your need and therefore accept his grace. Remember, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom and understanding or knowledge. It begins with Fearing and understanding who God is. A second, continue in the grace of God to experience freedom. Continue in the grace of God to experience freedom. I think if we can remember back, if you can remember back to the time when you first trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the salvation of your soul, the redemption to a holy God, you experienced freedom. You knew it. You knew, you knew all about it. But there's this broken part of us where we go back to feeling like we've got to earn it. If you look back at verse 44, um, or 43, after some people believed, it says, after the meeting in the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas. So they, they had converted. And as they spoke with them, Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. Just continue in grace. Don't go back to this merit-based system. Don't go back to legalism. Because if we go back to a merit-based system, guess what it does? It divides us. It divides us from God because we're, we, we steer away from his grace. And it divides us from one another because we start going, I'm better than you. Didn't see you last Sunday. You know, I sang louder than you, you know, I held the door for that person. Whatever merit-based system you want to base it off of, if you live off a merit-based system, it divides you from God and it divides you from others. Continue in the grace of God. And then finally, stand on God's promises to be filled with joy. Stand on his promises to be filled with joy. The Jews start all of this chaos to to kick out uh, Paul and Barnabas. They don't want to hear the message, the good news, that the victory has already been won. They want to earn it themselves. 
But there were Gentiles that they go to that said that they greatly rejoiced. They believed. And if you look back at verse 52, it says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Even amidst all the chaos, how can they have joy amidst all the chaos? How can you have joy amidst all the chaos in this world? You go, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He promised me that he paid it all. He promised me that he loves me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. He promised me he has a place for me. He promised me that no good thing would he withhold from anyone who walks according to his ways. To any of his children. How can you have joy amidst the chaos? You stand on his promises. And the promise is this. The victory has already been won. It's not a pregame speech. There's no game to be played. God does not play games. He has paid it all and he has won so that you can walk in his victory. Amen? God, thank you for your goodness and kindness to us that you would give us this message not only give us this message, but give us your righteousness through what you paid for us on the cross. Lord, may that be our song. May that be our hope. May that be our foundation. May that be our message to those around us so that we could experience the the freedom, the joy, the peace. And as others accept that around us, would they experience the same? Lord God, may this speech never get old and always inspire us to know you more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.